Hey everyone, this is Motherkind. I'm your host, Zoe Blasky, and this is the show that is going to give you all the tools, ideas, and support you need as together we ride the wild roller coaster that is modern motherhood. This episode, we are going to completely reframe postnatal depression and anxiety. I was never diagnosed, but I definitely felt very low and anxious in those early days and actually the first few years. And today's guest, psychologist Yara Heary, is going to give us a new frame of reference for how we think about that experience and whatever you went through or perhaps are still going through, how to see your experiences as part of a bigger picture. Please send this episode to any new mums you know or anyone going through a tricky time in that postpartum period. We need to get these kind, compassionate ideas out there. Here it is. Yara, I'm so excited to chat to you and connect. And I wanted to ask you to start with about something that you wrote. And it says, postpartum depression or anxiety is a way of describing a set of symptoms. The important question to ask next is, why do these symptoms exist? So tell us about that. Why do these symptoms exist? Yeah, it's a good question. And I have to say that there's different opinions about this, of course. But for me, I look at anything that a client comes in with and I think about it from a biopsychosocial model. So I'm thinking about what's involved from a biological perspective, what's involved from a psychological perspective, and also what's involved in terms of a social perspective. So what are the factors across those three areas? And so when I think about postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, I'm thinking about obviously for women who've just had a baby, we know that there's a really big hormone adjustment that happens after that. So we know that there's a huge drop in estrogen. We know that there's a huge drop in progesterone. And so some of that can, I guess, explain changes in mood. We wouldn't necessarily describe it straight away as postpartum depression, but, you know, if it lingers on, then we would obviously use that kind of terminology. But we also have other things like disrupted sleep, and we also have stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, which spike during labor, but also can continue if the environments that people are in are actually really stressful. And being a mother yourself and me being a mother myself, I know the stress that exists when you're trying to adjust to this new role. And potentially, depending on what kind of support you've got at home, that can also make things more stressful, right? Like there's all sorts of things that happen, whether or not someone has experienced trauma in their birth, whether they have people around them that can understand that, whether they actually have the support at home at all. So all of those factors play a role in both the psychological kind of aspects of how people are coping when they become mothers, but also in terms of the hormones that are sort of pumping through their body at that time as well. And then the other one is the social part. And the social part is what I love to talk a lot about because I feel like it doesn't get enough airtime. So when we look simply at the biological elements, it's easy to kind of, I guess, blame or put on to mothers that something is wrong with them or that something in their body isn't working well. It's the interplay of these three things. And so from the social perspective, it's like, you know, are women adequately prepared? What are their expectations in terms of what motherhood is going to be for them? Because we know that when people generally experience distress, it's often, I mean, apart from traumatic kind of events, it's often because their expectation about something and the reality of that don't actually match up. And that's where a lot of distress can happen. And then again, coming back to the thing about support, right? Like how does our society and our culture 
set women up for going into this experience of mothering and being in this place of motherhood? Does it actually set them up to have the support that they need? And I would argue that it's drastically inadequate, that there just isn't enough support for mothers. So when you look across all of those things together, it kind of creates a perfect storm for some people if, you know, they're going through each of those elements and they're saying, well, no, I'm not getting enough sleep and actually it is really stressful for me and I don't have enough support and I didn't have a reasonable expectation of what this was going to be like. And I think that when you look across all of those, if you kind of I guess in the red across those areas, that's when we can see things like postpartum depression and anxiety showing up. It's so true. So is it real then, postpartum depression and anxiety? Yeah, yeah, I think it's real. I mean, obviously there's a spectrum in terms of the severity of postpartum depression. So it can be something from mild and it can go all the way to much more severe kinds of postpartum depression or anxiety, which can lead people to need to be hospitalised. And across that diversity in terms of how people are presenting, how mothers are presenting, there's different sorts of interventions that you may use. I mean, for many women, maybe in the sort of mild to moderate talk therapy and actually exercise, which is in itself I laugh when I say that because I know what it's like with time pressure, but we know that there's actually like a dose response kind of relationship with mood and exercise. I actually did my dissertation on that. So I'm aware that if we can get people moving, we can actually improve mood and we have all sorts of hormones and things that can be at play there. But I also think that part of it is also that when we have movement in our body, it allows us to complete stress cycles as well that we otherwise may not be completing. So if we aren't getting enough movement, whether that's in exercise or dancing or yoga or whatever it is that you're doing, we may be actually holding stress in our body. And through that movement, it actually allows us to process that and to dissipate some of that energy as well. So yeah, I mean, postpartum depression is real, but recently I had that post. The thing I was getting at there is that I think that when we just talk about it as postpartum depression, okay, there's a chemical imbalance or something. If we talk about it simply from that perspective, we're missing a really big part of the picture, which is actually what is happening in the life of that woman. What does she have the supports? Like what kind of expectations does she have around motherhood? Is she trying to live up to this perfect mothering ideology? Does she have people around her that really provide her the safety and support that she really needs? And I think that when we look at it simply from a biological perspective, it's also easy to end up, I guess, looking at mothers as though there's a failure in them for having actually experienced depression. And especially because, you know, for me, I really like to look at patriarchy and the impact that that has on our experiences of mothering. And so I also feel that when we pathologize a lot of these emotional experiences that mothers have, it's a way of blaming mothers and not requiring our culture and our society to actually change to improve the conditions for them so they don't have these experiences. You know, I was thinking about it the other day because I actually just finished reading Mom Rage, which is, I'm going to forget her name now, Mina Dubin, I think is her name. And I was just thinking to myself after finishing reading, I was so revved up and I thought, there's so many reasons to look after mothers, even if you think of it from an economic perspective, right, or you think about it in terms of safety levels in our community. It's like the preventative medicine for so many things that go wrong in our culture. So it doesn't make sense, but it does make sense in a patriarchal system 
because a patriarchal system only works when there is an imbalance of power, where there is one gender that is dominating. And in order for them to dominate, there needs to be subjugation of women in this case, you know. And so, yeah, it's just, it's very frustrating. (laughs) Very frustrating. If someone listening is experiencing whether they've got that label, you know, from a medical professional or not, if they're experiencing what they feel like is postpartum depression or anxiety, or perhaps like me, they're looking back on that experience, what would you want them to know? I want them to know that there is nothing wrong with them for having that experience or for looking back. And in fact, Zoe, I so relate to that because I think back to times when my baby woke every hour, sometimes every half hour, all night long. I don't even know how I was alive. I don't know how I was continuing to go on. And there were some really low periods for me during that too. And so I want women to know, mothers to know that there's nothing wrong with them and there is no failure in seeking support and that it is completely reasonable for them to have that experience given the amount of load that is on women today in modern kind of motherhood. There is so much load on us, mental load, actual physical labor load, emotional load. Like there is so much for us to be across. It makes complete sense that people actually can't keep up with it, that they don't actually have the resources required in order to not experience postpartum depression. Of course, not everyone is going to have that. But I think that when we do have that, it's a symptom of the entire system, right? And the way that that works or doesn't work rather for mothers. And I would also say, whether you identify it as postpartum depression or anxiety, or if you just don't feel right, you just don't feel like yourself, you just can't you know, you don't feel happy or you feel really dissatisfied in some way with your experience of mothering, I would just say just go and get help. Like you don't need to be at the point where you have to be admitted in order to get help, right? Like you can get help at any part of that spectrum and the earlier you get help, the less likely you are to end up more along that place which is more severe and that sooner you will be able to actually enjoy the experience more, right? So I think that that's what I would really love people to know. And also just because we are talking about the kind of, you know, whether it's coming from a medical professional or not, I think that it's completely reasonable to use any resource that exists to get through postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. So whether that's talk therapy, whether you're getting involved in somatic practices or whether you're using medication, all of these things exist to you and it's important to use what works for you But I, of course, being a psychologist, would always say that talk therapy is really, really important because even though we may be able to manage symptoms with medication, it's not going to take away the circumstances, right, in your day-to-day life that may have also influenced an experience of depression or anxiety. So I do think that talk therapy and working through that stuff is so important as well. And tell me about your early experiences so you mentioned that that you reflect back what was it like for you would you say you had postpartum depression or anxiety yeah it's hard to know I mean I've, I've definitely had periods of time where I have felt like am I okay am I coping do I need to go and see a GP do I need to maybe use antidepressants I have had those thoughts absolutely I would say that my own personal experience is that Maybe two years into having my first son, 
I started to really consciously track my cycle. And for me, I actually started to notice that it was actually aligned with certain parts of my cycle. And so that's also something that would be really wonderful for people to actually track because I had never tracked my cycle before that. And so being able to identify that it happened at a certain point in my cycle meant that when it was happening, I could remind myself that, okay, this is where I'm at in the cycle. This is what happens when that is going on. And I know that it isn't going to last. Still to this day, I still experience that. It tends to be more around just frustration now because I have children who sleep all night long and, you know, I have much more time to engage in my own pursuits and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, my own experience of motherhood, my son is seven now and my daughter is five. And I went into motherhood or becoming a mother very naive, which which almost feels embarrassing to say because of the work that I do. But I went in very naive. I, I spent a lot of time and energy researching birth and labor and being really informed about all of that and being very clear about what I wanted in that. And I guess maybe thinking about parenting, like the actual type of parent maybe, but I really didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what was going to happen to me as an individual? Like where was Yara going to go? Who was she going to be? How was I going to give space to and honour my own transition into this new entity, into this new being? I really didn't spend much time doing that. And I think also once I was kind of in it, I also was kind of of the opinion early on that I'd get through that real intense time and then I'd go back to being me And what I've come to understand now is that I'll never go back to that person. You know, there are elements of her still with me, but I'm a totally new iteration of myself and I've really come to love that. And there's a real curiosity about who this new person is and excitement about what might she be into now? You know, like there's this really beautiful thing, but that was really scary for a long period of time. And for me, I think part of, I don't know, the surrender or releasing of that came from a better understanding around, again, elements of the patriarchy, which is kind of saying to mothers to be doing it right, you should bounce back in some way. Like you shouldn't change. You should still be the same person. You should still be able to uphold your relationships in the same way. And, you know, for me, my married relationship should stay the same, all of that sort of thing. And I've had to really embrace that actually I'm just a completely different person And everybody else has to get used to that too, right? Like, (laughs) because that's the other thing, right? Sometimes people can be like, you've changed, you know? It's like, yeah. And I'm actually really proud of that. I'm proud of that. So I guess for me, coming to understand that it wasn't just a baby that was being born, it was actually a whole new version of me that was being born in that day as well. And so identity stuff was huge for me, like massive, massive, massive. And then also relationship stuff, that was pretty big for me as well. And actually, I would say the relationship stuff is probably what set me on this course of doing the work that I do now, because I started to look at why didn't anyone tell me this was going to happen to my relationship and what is out there in terms of supporting people to be prepared for that transition as a couple, because it's one thing to prepare even individually, but actually as a couple, it's just, (laughs) it's completely different, you know, what your relationship looks like after having a baby. So that was just massive, just so, so massive. And again, you know, as I mentioned sort of earlier, I think my son didn't really sleep through the night until my daughter came along and a bit after, so maybe about three. And I reckon 
from about eight to 10 months until about two, he woke every hour and a half. We'd be at the beach at four o'clock in the morning eating wheat picks out of a plastic container, <laughs> you know, because I just, I had to get out of the house. I couldn't stay, you know, and I'd be walking, walking, walking everywhere with a pram. So that was really hard. That was its own journey as well in terms of accepting that his sleep was what it was and that he wasn't a bad baby. There actually was nothing that I could do to change that either. So it was kind of like, how do I adjust my life in order to be able to still get through this extreme sleep deprivation? And like I said, now he sleeps in in the morning and I have to get him up to get to school on time. So (laughs) it's just like, you know, really weird. And thankfully when my, um, When my daughter came, she was a much better sleeper, much better breastfeeder. Like I had so many worries having a second baby thinking, oh, God, the Russian roulette, what's going to happen next? But actually she just was a different baby. She was easier in some ways and other ways not so much. But, yeah, it was intense. (laughs) It was very intense. Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. So AG1 provides support in five really important areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal and neural support and healthy aging. But one of the things that I am asked most often, it's does it actually taste nice? Well, yes, I really like it. You can taste a little bit of vanilla and pineapple. It is a tiny bit sweet. It's definitely not one of those bitter greens. I actually really look forward to drinking it every morning especially as when I'm drinking it, I am reminding myself that I am worth looking after. So for us mums, we know how busy we are. So if you are looking for a way to take care of yourself that is quick and easy, then you need to try AG1 and you will get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you need to do is go to drinkag1.com slash motherkind That's drinkag1.com slash motherkind and give it a try. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind. Tell me about your relationship and the work that you do. How can couples either prepare or a lot of the people listening to this will be in the thick of that, oh God, I think I've made a baby with the wrong person because I hate this person, (laughs) which I think is really common. and We don't talk about it enough. Totally. I remember thinking that a lot in the night (laughs) when I was up, you know, feeding this baby. Although I have to admit, in particular with our first, my husband was so involved because he, you know, our little one, he was not putting on weight and he 
struggled a lot with breastfeeding. So there was a lot of breast pumping happening. And so one, you know, I'd be pumping, he'd be feeding him with this sort of tube and stuff. So he was really involved actually. In some ways, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because it was a really tough time, but because there was so much need from this little baby, he was so involved. He was just right there with me through all of it. So that was really great. And then I think probably by about six months, because now he was exclusively breastfeeding, it was mainly me kind of getting up in the night anyway. I think that the most important thing people can have is start by having really honest conversations about what they think is going to happen and what their expectations are. So one of the things I recognise is I had expectations about what I expected my husband to do, but I didn't actually communicate those. I just assumed that he would know what those things were, that they were just obvious kind of parts of his role as a father and as a husband. So that got us in a lot of trouble. And I think he also had those things as well. And so having conversations that talk about, you know, what are your parenting values? How are you going to get sleep? And I would say for everyone, plan as though you're not going to have a baby that sleeps through the night. And then if you do, it's a bonus, right? So how are you going to get the rest that you need, the two of you, if you have a baby that is very wakeful, which is normal for very small babies as well? What is the conversation around work? You know, like what is maternity and paternity leave look like? How are you going to share care when mum goes back to work if she does or does she want to go back to work all of those sorts of questions who's going to care for the household especially in that very early postpartum period who is actually going to provide the hands-on support who is going to cook the dinners who's going to wash the laundry all of those sorts of things that you don't have those conversations and I think that you know especially in countries where there is maternity leave what happens then is that mothers end up defaulting to a lot of that load And that is where a lot of resentment happens. And so I think it's really important to be very intentional actually about those parts of what is going to happen. And I have to admit that, you know, for many people, before you have a baby, you don't have insight necessarily into the lives of those people who already have children, right? So you may not even know the questions to ask. And so really good places to start is resources from the Gottman Institute. And they have a beautiful book called And Baby Makes Three. And it goes through a whole bunch of this stuff. It goes through conflict resolution, all of these elements that I've talked about. Obviously, there's fair play that you can have a look at. And in fact, probably most couples would benefit looking at that, even if they didn't have children or babies. So those are two really good places to start to get you thinking about what are the sorts of questions that we need to be asking to actually be prepared and to be on the same page so that when this baby comes along, you can actually feel like a real team, right? I remember when I I went and did training So that book that I mentioned by the Gottmans, they have a program that they do as well, which is a 12-week program. And I remember when I went and did the educator training for that, and I was pregnant actually with my second, and I feel like I just was sitting in there with my mouth on the floor the whole time because I was like, why didn't anyone tell me any of this stuff? Like I just, I felt really frustrated about that. I just thought, I can't believe you just get left to fend for yourself, you know. And I think because we live in many Western cultures, it's such an individualistic culture, we really don't have engagement in the families of others in the way that maybe in days gone by we did have. So we'd have insight about what was going to happen and the change and 
and maybe there was like rites of passage and things. We don't have that. And so we are kind of going blind into this new phase of life. So it is really important to have those communications early on so that we can be as prepared as possible. And it's never too late. If you've got a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and you're the she-fault, as Eve Rodsky of Fair Play calls it, as in the default parent, you're picking it all up, it is never too late to have those conversations. Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, those books are amazing. That book by John Gottman and Julie Gottman, Baby Makes Three, is brilliant. I give it to so many clients. It's just fantastic. Oh, thank you for that recommendation. And I always ask the same question at the end, and I can't wait to hear your answer, which is if you could give just one gift, just one, (laughs) to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Yeah, I thought really hard about this one. I've come up with an answer which I feel is squeezing two into one. (laughs) We'll see. So my gift would be adequate parental leave. And I say parental because you know, obviously mothers need to have adequate leave and I would say adequate paid parental leave. But as I mentioned there around the issue with not having paternal leave is that we end up in imbalanced kinds of situations and roles in the home. And I think that that actually is the kind of conception point for a lot of problems and those imbalances. And I think that if Obviously, women need that leave and they need to have financial support for that, which is why I'm saying it needs to be paid. But also, I think men need to be in the home on the ground right from the get-go so that they are in there learning the skills because mothering is a skill. It's not something we just have naturally. And they need to be in there learning those fathering skills right from the get-go, going through the struggles, seeing the hardships that exist. And really, I just feel like that would really set couples in particular up for just understanding one another better you know and I often hear the women that I know sometimes when they've gone back to work and maybe their partner has taken time to be home or one of them's just taken a big chunk of time away or whatever and then their male partners are like oh my god I get it you know (laughs) it's just so disappointing that it it has to take that long and there's so many ingrained things that already exist by that point so I feel like if we could get a situation where there is adequate paid parental leave it means that single mothers as well are covered but also for couples that are out there it means that both people in that couple whether it's a same-sex relationship or not are both there on the ground learning the skills so that it's a really supportive co-parenting situation that's what my gift would be yeah that would be incredible because you're right so many of those inequalities start right from the start and here in the UK you know they tell the father to or the non-birthing parent to go home and get some rest which always makes me laugh because surely it's the other it should be the other way (laughs) but I've absolutely I've absolutely adored this conversation thank you so much for your time and where can someone learn more about you and your offerings in the world you can find me over on Instagram, which is my handle is Life After Birth Psychology, or you can find me on my website, which is lifeafterbirth.com.au, or otherwise I do also have a podcast, which is same name. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 